Hello, and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Today we have Priest, just a little bit of Priest. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going to be talking about the class for our fourth homebrew showcase character. As you may have guessed from James's little bit, we are talking about the cleric today. Our fourth character is going to be a hobgoblin, and so in the theme of hobgoblins, we have decided we are going to be doing a war domain cleric for a fourth character. So yeah, we wanted to break down why you want to roll a cleric, what's good about them. Obviously, I mean, they've got a ton of great stuff about the cleric. We did decide to branch a bit away from the uh, free standard rule set like we did with our wizard, just because the free standard rule set, the cleric was a life domain. And that did not fit with our party and our hobgoblin in this case. Yeah, the life domain just does not fit thematically with the hobgoblin. I mean, there are ways that you can shoehorn it to make it fit, but the war cleric just feels thematically appropriate for a hobgoblin cleric. Very much so. Particularly if you remember from last week's episode where the hobgoblins themselves, they have their own separate god from the main goblinoid god and they are both war gods and the lesser of those two gods their clerics carry a status within hobgoblin society they act as arbiters they act as a peacekeeping force they're basically police they are the military force they are the religious force they are the peacekeeping force And everything about Hobgoblin religion is focused largely on this war domain. So it would have been very strange not to go ahead and step into that when it's already presented. And this has come up several times before. The Cleric is my personal favorite class to play in Dungeons & Dragons. I like them because they are full casters that have some meat on them. You know, they automatically get proficiency with medium armor and with shields. They can stand up in the front lines and they can dish out a beating as well as taking one. They're pretty much self-sufficient. They have buffs. They have debuffs. They have attack spells. They have healing spells. They just got everything. Absolutely. This is definitely one of the cases where the Venn diagram of Ian and I do overlap. I also do enjoy playing a cleric. And again, because they can be self-sufficient, they can be beefy, they can either buff or debuff, depending on how you want to play your cleric and what spells you prepare or get. And much like we both love the rogue, but we have very different ways of playing the rogue, we do have some slightly different ways of viewing the cleric. And we might talk about that a little bit, but this is definitely one area where we are pretty much in full agreement with most things. All right, so the basic stats on the cleric... They start off with a D8 hit die, 8 plus your con at first level, 1D8 plus your con every level after. It's not the D10 that you get from your fighter or paladin, but that's because they are primarily a caster. They're a caster who can fight rather than a fighter who can cast spells. So proficiencies, you get light armor, medium armor, and shields. Simple weapons, no tools. That's, again, a bit of an oddity for me, but I mean, I guess I can see it because you'll probably pick up tools depending on your background you pick up, unless I don't think the Acolytes get tools. I'm not certain, but there are a lot of backgrounds that do get tool proficiencies. That is definitely something that you can pick up. I'm okay with not giving them heavy armor as a baseline. I'm okay with not giving them martial weapons as a baseline. I think that we left 
the hobgoblin racial ability where they start off with proficiency with two martial weapons of their choice. No, we did leave that because that was just... Again, that's one of those thematic elements, particularly for the Hobgoblin. We left it in, but we added stuff to the Hobgoblin because there was a lot of redundancy with that across other classes. I'm okay with the armor, weapon, and tool proficiencies. And again, you have to think, and this is one of the things we definitely need to discuss at one point, is you can min-max your character and then you can roleplay your character. And sometimes those two things are in conflict. Just because you can stat-wise put it on, can you as a roleplay character have a reason for it? And if you're a cleric and you're devoting yourself to the study of religion and gods or you know your priestly duties, you're not working with your hands a whole lot generally. You may be working with your hands, not in the same way that a fighter is working with their hands. Or anything else. So like your proficiencies with your tools or things like that. Not to focus too much. I mean, yeah, Christ was, you know, either a mason or a carpenter, depending on how you want to translate the word builder. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your bishops are running around with hammers and nails in their pocket or stone chisels either. Right. As a low-level cleric, you're going to be fairly low in the hierarchy of whatever religious order that you're part of. And being fairly low in that religious order, there's going to be a lot of menial tasks that you're going to be undertaking and not necessarily a lot in the lines of artistic or trade skills. Definitely not. You're going to be doing studying. Again, also it depends on, you know, I don't want to Traditionally, for me, you know, I'm going to think of your monasteries and whatnot in Christian, Protestant, Catholic type versions. So there are other religions where people were more heads on. But generally, your priests and your clerics in the classic sense are not trade workers. So again, your tool proficiencies are going to be a bit questionable. So you get proficiency with wisdom and charisma saving throws. I like that. Those totally make sense. Because wisdom is the attribute that you're using as your spellcasting ability and then charisma because you're a preacher preacher man needs to have some charisma yo you gotta have that cult of personality and then skills you get to choose two skills from history insight medicine persuasion and religion all totally reasonable i mean why would a cleric have religion as a skill that makes zero sense absolutely right? no really? sense yeah no sense at all <laughs> these all are fairly well-rounded they make sense the cleric, as a class, is fairly well rounded out. There's not a lot to really improve upon. If anything, they can be a little unwieldy, much like the wizards are, because then you start, once you get past there and past the basic stuff, things start branching out like crazy, but we'll get there in a moment. Absolutely. There are so many domains to choose from. You can really specialize your cleric to be just about anything you want. Which is one of the reasons why I very much do enjoy playing the cleric, because it does give so many options for character building and roleplay. Alright, so getting into spellcasting for your cleric, the cleric and the druid are both full casters that, like the wizard, prepare their spells every day, as opposed to the bard and the sorcerer and the warlock who have a pool of spells that they know that they always have prepared and that they can just pull out one of these spells throw it into a spell slot and cast it the difference that clerics and druids have as opposed to wizards is clerics and druids have access to their full class spell list all the time yes and that's actually a really nice thing to have 
it does make playing a cleric a little clunky for new clerics or people who aren't used to it, or if you're switching additions. But as you get used to it, it's very, very handy because, like Ian said, you have access to everything. So you're not trying to glean and pick up spells. You are blessed with knowledge of everything. And on top of it, as a cleric, you get domain spells, which at first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth level, you have these two spells of first, second, third, fourth, fifth level spells. They are always prepared. They don't count against your total number of spells prepared for the day. So in the case of the War Domain Cleric, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. At first level, you always have Divine Favor and Shield of Faith prepared. So that frees up space in your list of prepared spells, giving you a bit more freedom to choose now, the number of spells you prepare per day. In 5th edition, I found it a little clunky at first. You get used to it fairly quick, I guess. You develop a flavor for it. It is a bit of an acquired taste. But you prepare the spells. It's your wisdom modifier plus your cleric level. So the higher your wisdom modifier, the more spells you're going to be able to prepare for a day. So that does give you a little extra incentive to really stack that wisdom modifier instead of trying to play something a little wonky versus an advanced D&D or third edition. You got so many spells set per level and that was just a standard for everybody. So even this, depending on how you build your cleric, that does give you a little bit of room to squish. So once you get to being a 20th level cleric with a 20 wisdom score, you're able to have 35 spells prepared per day. So you have 5 from your plus 5 wisdom modifier, 20 from your caster level, and then the 10 domain spells that you automatically have prepared all the time anyway. So you actually have a huge pool of spells to pull from, and it can get to a point where, you know, you forget that you have these third-level spells prepared. You're like, oh, this would have been a great thing to cast two rounds ago. The spells can get a little unwieldy at high level. You learn some favorite spells. You tend to pick some favorite ones because that's just how it goes. And again, that does also become a way to flavor and build your character as well. And now in 5th edition, alignment is not nearly as prevalent as it has been in the past. But I know in past editions, there are certain spells that will, if you use them, push your alignment one way or another. Like the Inflict Wounds spells, good aligned clerics don't really get away with using Inflict Wounds. I think you had to burn it at a higher spell level. There was a way you could get around that, but it was a more costly spell in that case. I don't think, at least not in 3rd edition. In 3rd edition, there was no upcast or anything. It's just that good aligned gods don't really like it very much whenever you're casting Inflict Wounds. Because it's a necromantic spell and it's negative energy, and it just is one of those things that the good-aligned deities didn't really like. If you are choosing to roleplay your alignment, there are certain spells that you as a cleric might have to explain to your god why you want to prepare them. And I like that. That's up to the player and DM, but that always adds a lot of flavor to the game. And like I said, as much as you can roleplay your character at the table, it really does make the game that much better for everyone involved it's more fun for you your character becomes more memorable if you and your friends can role play the character it just adds so much to the table i think we've all sat at the table and seen the one person that's really good at role play again ian is amazing at role play 
I am not near as good as he is, but it brings a lot to the table. And then that kind of gives the other player something to reflect off of. And that's where it becomes, instead of just everybody sitting at a table and playing a game, it does become more of a story. I mean, there's nothing wrong with sitting around a table and just chucking dice at things. We have done that many a night, but I mean, it is a role-playing game, and I, for one, like getting into the role of my character. My, my main come to the table dressed as your character yet, though, and I'm kind of waiting for that to happen. I want to see you in your Rogan Wizard hat. I have not come to a D&D game dressed as my character. I have come to a Vampire the Masquerade game dressed as my character. You did kind of... That one time, yeah, you did kind of dress up as your character, I do recall. Oh, it was Jimmy, correct? Yeah. Jimmy Nardello, the Bruja Italian mobster, yeah. Now, a great example of roleplay at a table, a bit of a side, but again, so much fun. The game I'm running with Ian and a couple other friends, we have a gentleman that's running a bard, and it was our second or third session at the table, and much to his wife's chagrin, apparently they went out somewhere, and he decided that when his bard was paying his bill... He pulls out this little tin recorder that he picked up from somewhere (laughs) and starts playing it. And it was the most hilarious thing. And it was perfect. And it was wonderful. And his wife hated him for it. But it was amazing. And I mean, that was just one of those beautiful moments of gameplay that I'll never forget. Yeah, he's playing a goblin bard alongside my kobold monk. And we are getting into so much trouble. I think everyone is playing a short character except for my wife. My wife is playing an elf. She's playing an elf druid, and at five foot four, she is the tallest person by like two feet. It's kind of hilarious because we have a dwarf paladin and a gnome wizard, and then the goblin bard and the kobold monk. So, yeah, we are Lilliput. We're getting off topic. So, also at first level for a cleric, you get to choose your divine domain. The ones in the player's handbook are knowledge, life, light, nature, tempest, trickery, and war. So that's, what, eight of them, I think? Seven. Um, Not as many as the wizard, which I think has eight or nine, just in the base rules. But the two of them, I don't know which one has more subclasses now with all of the additional materials. Absolutely, the clerics. With Unearthed Arcana and the subbooks, because I think the wizards only got like an extra school or two through all of that. Pretty sure they have a few more than that. That's something we can look up later. But like we said, we're only going to focus on the war domain because otherwise this would be a five-hour-long episode. Right, and again, there are so many rabbit trails to chase down. And as part of your divine domain, you get channel divinity, which you end up getting at second level, where it's basically an extra spell that's not tied to a spell slot. Starting at second level, when you get it, you get to use it once per day. You get to start using it twice per day at sixth level and three times per day at 18th level. And most of these channel divinities, they do it's either a spell or they'll supercharge a spell for max damage. Yeah, the Tempest Domain, I think, is one that lets you maximize damage. Right. The last cleric I played was a uh, Dragonborn Tempest Cleric, and maximizing those lightning damage spells can be really nice in a pinch. Yeah. When you roll lightning or thunder damage, you can use your channel divinity to deal max damage instead of rolling. Just deciding that, oh yeah, so I'm going to upcast this lightning bolt, and I'm going to go ahead and just deal 50 damage to everything it hits. Yeah, those AoE spells that you get as a cleric. I'm just going to walk in and be a walking bomb. And then, in addition to whatever you get 
from your domain, you also get the iconic turn undead at second level. That also is your channel divinity. So whenever you use it, each undead that can see or hear you within 30 feet has to make a wisdom saving throw. And if they fail, they're frightened of you for a minute and they have to run away if they can. And if they can't, then they just cower until someone hits them. And it's an amazing way if you have a room full of undead monsters to just lock down an entire room and systematically mop up. It really is. And one big difference with this in 5e than you see in 3 or 3.5 or even advanced Dungeons and Dragons is everyone has turn undead. It used to be turn undead or rebuke undead, depending if you were good or evil aligned. And this is one of those things where you can see that Wizards is starting ever so slowly to pull away from that good evil alignment. I think they're starting to move more and more in that direction of a general neutrality which I like in a lot of ways and I can support. So this also makes it easier. Everyone gets the same spell because really Turn Undead, Rebuke Undead did pretty much the same thing, except it was a different name. And so you had to look things up. So it was a little more unwieldy to try to find. I never played an evil cleric in third edition, so I never fiddled with Rebuke Undead. I may have thought. (laughs) (laughs) I never really figured out what the difference between the two actually was. I think... Did Rebuke Undead allow you to command Undead? I don't recall. It may have, at higher levels, gave a command. It was pretty much the same thing. It was almost more flavor text than functional for the most part. All right. So starting at fourth level, just like with everybody else, you get your first ability score improvement. They get the standard spread of 4, 8, 12, 16, 19. They don't get any extra special ones like some of the other classes, like the fighter and the rogue do. But they're getting so much... The cleric, you actually do get some good class benefit in your in-between levels. It's not like the wizard or so much the rogue where a rogue is a rogue is a rogue. The clerics really do give you so much extra stuff for flavor that I'm okay with only getting an ASI every four levels. It is pretty standard for your full casters to not get extra stuff because they get access to so many spells. Although, I will say that I kind of wish that the wizard had gotten an extra ASI just to throw back to the older editions where they did get bonus feats as they progressed like the fighter did. Not as many as the fighter, but that was because at that point they were getting meta magic because meta magic was not a sorcerer specific thing. Yeah. And the meta magic for the old sorcerers was a huge deal. Yeah. You had to pick up metamagics for a wizard in order to really function once you started getting into the higher levels. You had to be able to heighten your spells. You had to be able to quicken your spells. You had to be able to maximize your spells. Right. Yeah. Even things like still spell or silent spell was really great in a pinch. Oh, yeah. Uh, and really could be the difference between a party wipe or not. Yeah, being able to drop that illusion with a silent spell, not giving your position away trying to cast the spell, that could really mean the difference between a successful infiltration and getting caught by the guards trying to get in and having to fight your way in. So starting at 5th level, clerics get Destroy Undead. So whenever they use their Channel Divinity to turn undead, they automatically destroy undead of a certain CR or lower that fail their saving throw. And I think in third edition, this is where this branched out versus destroy undead. And I think if you're an evil cleric, it became command undead at this point, if I recall. Okay. 
So whenever you get it at fifth level, you're destroying CR one half or lower undead. And it goes up to CR one at eighth level, CR two at 11th level, CR three at 14th level, CR four at 17th level. So there are a lot of undead that are fairly low CR. I was kind of surprised just going through how many undead fall into the CR two or lower category most of them in fact most of them yeah i think the few that don't see here the vampire the mummy and mummy lord i think the white is like a cr3 or cr4 i think the wraith is a cr5 your liches are a bit higher than that as well and your lich and your demi lich but and your draco lich so yeah you're not going to be able to destroy undead on those guys but they're a good way to clear a lot of trash real fast absolutely you can just walk into a room full of skeletons and you walk out, you know, covered in bone dust. And then the next thing, you don't actually get another new thing from your base class until level 10. And it's the last thing that you get from the actual base class. And it's divine intervention. So starting at 10th level, you can call on your deity to intervene on your behalf when your need is great. So you roll percentile dice. And if you roll a number equal to or lower than your cleric level, your deity intervenes. The DM chooses the nature of the intervention. The effect of any cleric spell or cleric domain spell would be appropriate. And this is one of the very few times that rolling low is good. So if you're having a day where your dice just seem to hate you, just go ahead and ask for the divine intervention. Take that one dice out of die jail and and go ahead and roll it. Let them redeem itself. Yeah, and then it's going to roll a 93 and... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If your deity intervenes, you can't use the feature again for seven days. Otherwise, you can't use it again until you finish a long rest. It's a once-per-day Hail Mary that you have to wait to curry favor if you manage to get it. This can be a lot of fun. I've only ever seen this used once or twice. This is something where the DM can really do a lot of stuff with the players. Because, okay, if the deity is going to split the sky and step in on your behalf, now you owe quite a few karma points. So how are you going to make up for that? So depending on how you or your DM want to play this, this can be a really big thing for the party as far as story goes. Again, this is a really good chance to roleplay. I like this just for the amount of potential this has as far as what happens. Not necessarily just on the board, but story-wise or character-wise. So for people who have watched the first season of Critical Role, Pike managed to get a successful divine intervention in the fight against the White Dragon of the Chroma Conclave. I can't remember the name of all of them, but she managed to roll a successful divine intervention against the White Dragon and ended up getting like a ninth level flame strike, I think it was. is a pretty big chunk of damage that she managed to get out of it the party still almost died it was still almost a party wipe but it was definitely clutch i've almost forgot one very important detail at 20th level your call for intervention succeeds automatically no role required if you're a 20th level cleric and you've gone you haven't multi-classed you haven't done anything you've lived that long you're pretty good standing at imagine with your deity you're basically pope so That would be actually something really kind of cool to do with a cleric, and this would be something to do another day. But I know, at least in 3rd edition, when you 
reached level 20th as a druid, you had to fight the current archdruid for the spot of archdruid. So if, like, you level 20th cleric, you had to fight for Pope or Amon <laughs> or whatever the head of religion is, you know, Flying Spaghetti Monster or whatever it is, you know, that would actually be a really fun thing to throw as a curveball for everyone. Again, that's a different rabbit trail for a different day. That is definitely a major RP thing. All right. So that brings us to the end of the base class. Just looking on the base class stuff, I'm not seeing anything that I really want to change. Do you have anything that glaringly to you needs to be adjusted? Base class, no. I mean, like I said, the class is really solid. If I have any complaints at all about the cleric class, like I said, much like the wizard, once you get past the base class, it can get a little unwieldy. But the base class, very stout. The main thing that I have an issue with with the cleric itself is that the progression chart in the player's handbook looks very full and it has a whole lot of things listed as features that you get but there are only four class features total that you get you get your domain at first level you get your channel divinity at second level get destroy undead which is basically a modification to your channel divinity at fifth level and divine intervention at 10th level yeah, but that's because your domains are bringing so much more to the table. And like I said, much like the exact opposite of the rogue, where you only got like one or two little things, your domain's giving you a lot to work with as well. Again, it looks like it, and the bonuses that you get are really big. But if you break it down, you get your first level domain buff at first level. You get your specific channel divinity at second level. You're getting another ability at sixth level another ability at 8th level, and then you don't get anything else until 17th level. You do get Destroy Undead, which is a really nice... You get that at 5th level, that's part of the base class, and it does improve the CR for what you can destroy increases every 3rd level after you get it. But what I'm trying to point out here is that you get nothing new between 10th level and 17th level. Except a handful of spells. Wait, yeah, no, I guess not. You, oh, you get your spells at night. You get additional spell slots as you level up, but everything else is an improvement to an already existing class feature or domain feature. You're going to make me not like the cleric, and I'm really liking the cleric. Is there something you're wanting to add? There are some things that I'm wanting to add eventually. I'm going to get to that. So you actually have five dead levels, 3, 7, 9, 13, 15, where you don't get anything other than, I think, you unlock another level of spell slots. Because you unlock your new levels of spell slots on odd-numbered levels. So that's, at those five levels, that's all you get, is additional spell slots. Not to take a dump on getting additional spell slots, because that is a huge thing for full casters. But... Just looking at some of the other classes, they wrap it up nicely to make it look like they're giving you a lot, but it's really just tweaking the things that you already have. I'm not going to say the cleric's got a nice package, because that would sound horribly, horribly <laughs> wrong, but I mean, it does look nice, so I mean, if you have something in mind, I would love to hear what you're thinking about bringing up because like i said this does seem very full to me not over full not unwieldy but i'm not feeling underwhelmed i'm not feeling unsated you do bring up yeah so i mean you do have a with your domains there is a bit of a hollow point from 15 to 20 so i mean that is five levels of space you could put it as uh, i think you have a proposition in mind 
Well, I mean, the reason why I brought it up is because you specifically brought up that you had an issue with the rogue not getting anything between, I think it was level three and level nine. That six level spread. Yeah, but I mean, even in that case, the rogue didn't even get spell slots. The rogue got nothing. And for this, at least you're getting spell slots, so that's something. The rogue Uh, got lots of stuff from the base class. That was from the archetype between three and nine. The rogue gets their uncanny dodge. The rogue gets their evasion. They get all of that stuff. They get a pretty solid block of stuff. They do. I don't know. Just the cleric seems, it seems to carry through better. And I can't say exactly why. You do make a fair point that there is a good gap, particularly at higher levels, there's a gap. So now I'm like wanting to look at this and pick this apart a little further. And maybe that's something, because we did have some changes as we get into the domain. So maybe that's something I can think of yeah. to add some extra things to. So Okay, so let's just go ahead and dive into the domain. And uh, we'll go through the domain spells and the domain features. And then we'll discuss modifications. So starting off with the domain spells, at first level you get Divine Favor and Shield of Faith. Both of which are buff spells. I think Divine Favor increases your attack damage. I've got it right here. Your prayer empowers you with Divine Radiance. Until the spell ends, your weapon attacks deal an extra 1d4 radiant damage on a hit. And the duration of the spell is one minute. Okay. And then Shield of Faith increases your armor class. Now remember that one minute is game time, not real time. <laughs> yes. So That's 10 that rounds. But that is a great way if you're going up against something that has resistance or immunity to non-magical weapons. You throw a Divine Favor on that weapon, and now it's a magical weapon. So now it's dealing its full damage plus the 1d4 Radiant. At third level, you get Magic Weapon and Spiritual Weapon. I think Magic Weapon is just a temporary plus one buff. Yeah, it turns your weapon, strangely enough, into a magical weapon. So it is... It's a plus one to hit, it's a plus one to damage, but then also if you are attacking uh, ethereal creatures, now you have a magic weapon, so if, they're, uh, if they've got resistance to any physical attacks, this will ignore that as well. And then spiritual weapon is just a killer spell, especially for being a second level spell. You cast it as a bonus action, and then as a bonus action, you can move your weapon up to 30 feet and attack with it. And so depending on what it is, it's a 1d8 plus your spell casting, so it's 1d8 plus your wisdom modifier in this case. And it uses your spell attack bonus on attack rolls. Right, so this basically puts an extra player on the field for you. It really does come in handy. It can't make attacks of opportunity, but whenever you have the option of, whenever we get into the War Priest ability where you can make an attack as a bonus action... Once you get your spiritual weapon out on the field, especially if you upcast it, because you get an additional D8 per additional spell level when you cast it, it makes so much more sense to just cast spiritual weapon because you can attack with it on the turn you cast it. You can't move it on the turn you cast it, but you can cast it in a space and attack with it as a bonus action. And then every turn thereafter, you're attacking with this magical weapon that's dealing force damage that is the most potent damage type in the game and then too if you can really look at the map if you actually get to play with actual maps depending on where you want to place that spiritual weapon you feel like if you stick that in a bottleneck you don't get the attacks of opportunity but still you can control or lock down huge sections of the map or the room with that weapon 
So at fifth level, you get Crusader's Mantle, which I think is actually a paladin spell and not actually on the cleric spell list. And Spirit Guardians. Spirit Guardians is one of those super powerful spells. It basically drops an aura around you that makes it hard for people to get to you and they take damage if they try. Yeah, this is a good spell. Though honestly, that Crusader's Mantle, looking at that, that's something I might want to play with here in a little bit, because that actually looks like a really nice spell to walk around, and I think that's going to fit really well with some of the changes we want to make later on. Let's see here. 30-foot radius aura. Until the spell ends, the aura moves with you, centered on you. Each non-hostile creature in the aura, including you, deals an additional 1d4 radiant damage when it hits with a weapon attack. It's a one-minute concentration spell. Yeah. It's an AoE divine favor. So at seventh level, you get freedom of movement and stone skin. Stone skin, I think, gives you resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, slashing damage. And then freedom of movement lets you ignore difficult terrain. Is that right? You touch a willing creature for the duration. The target's movement is unaffected by difficult terrain. Spells and other magical effects can neither reduce the target's speed nor cause the target to be paralyzed or restrained. The target can also spend five feet of movement to automatically escape from non-magical restraints, such as manacles. A creature that has it grappled, finally being underwater, imposes no penalties to the creature's movement or attack. So that's actually... That is huge. Really, really nice spell to have. It's a one-hour duration, no concentration. That is killer. So that is... You know, you're getting ready to go in and fight the big bad. You go ahead and cast Freedom of Movement on the Barbarian. So that no matter what, that Barbarian is going to get up and rage face. Or if you get to that point, you know, where you wake up and it's the intro to Skyrim and everybody's manacled in and the guy's talking about Juniper Berries. You cast (laughs) Freedom of Movement, all of a sudden, you know, you're not bound by your shackles anymore. You just get out and book it. Well, that didn't really works so well for Lokir of Rorikstead. <laughs> just just saying. And then at ninth level, you get Flamestrike, which is my personal favorite spell of all time, and Hold so, Monster. Because um, monsters need leaven too. Oh wait, different kind of Hold Monster, I'm yeah, sorry. different kind of Hold Monster. <laughs> hold Monster is another one of those that's, it's a great crowd control ability. If you have two or three enemies that are all big bruisers, if you can manage to land a hold monster on one of them, and you just tell him to sit down and shut up for a minute while you take care of his buddies. That's some really good effective crowd control, which is a great thing to have on any fight. If you can focus fire on one or two enemies instead of trying to hit everybody all at once, that goes a long way for keeping the party alive. I really like the fact that the war domain spells don't focus exclusively on dealing damage they aren't exclusively let's churn out as much damage as we can there's a lot of improving your allies combat ability improving your allies survivability crowd control all of that sort of thing all right so now that we got the domain spells out of the way going into the actual domain features at level one you get bonus proficiencies so you get proficiency with martial weapons and heavy armor which is apropos for a war domain cleric. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. If you're going to be fighting, you're going to be in battle. You're going to know how to use some armor. You're going to know how to use some weapons. That's perfectly reasonable. And then you also get the ability War Priest, where you get to use your bonus action to make an additional weapon attack. And you can do it a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier per long rest. It's a nice way to just get 
an extra swing whenever you need it. Get some clutch attacks in. Especially, you know, if it's only one enemy and you don't want to blow a spell slot to summon your spiritual weapon. Or if you're out of spell slots and (laughs) can't cast (laughs) spiritual weapon. Which happens more often than you'd expect. All of my allies keep insisting on getting hit and I have to heal them. You should have to take care of yourself. That's why they make potions of healing. It's called splash damage. Get used to it. Alright, so starting at second level, you get your Channel Divinity Guided Strike. Whenever you make an attack roll, you can use your Channel Divinity to gain a plus 10 bonus on the roll. You make this choice after you see the roll, but before the DM says whether the attack hits or misses. That's really, really nice. When you're rolling and you roll that natural 6 and it's like, go ahead and use that, get that hit in, that's... And... Because it blows your channel divinity, you're only going to get to use it once, twice a day. Absolutely. So this doesn't happen all the time, but that is a nice little thing to have in your pocket. And then at 6th level, your channel divinity improves to where you can do War God's Blessing, which basically lets you give that bonus to an ally within 30 feet of you as a reaction to their attack. And again, that sounds really nice. Kind of spread the love around a bit. I'm really okay with that one too. At 8th level, you gain Divine Strike, which is basically a junior version of the Paladin's Smite. So once on each of your turns, when you hit with a weapon attack, you can add 1d8 damage of that weapon's damage type to the attack. Uh, It improves to 2d8 at 14th level. So once per turn, you get to add some mustard to your hit. That's not too bad, and that gives you that extra little 14th level bump, so that gap there that we were talking about earlier has lessened a little bit. I'm not saying that you don't get stuff. I never said that you don't get stuff. (laughs) I say you don't get new New stuff, stuff. which given the potency of the stuff that you get, I'm actually okay with it. It's just that I was pointing out that you don't get a whole lot of new stuff. And then the last one, Avatar Battle at 17th level, you gain resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical weapons. That's a pretty nice ability to have. It's basically getting permanent stone skin. So, the thing that I was wanting to do was push War God's Blessing back to a later level, and at 6th level, allow the War Cleric to gain a fighting style. Basically to choose one of the paladin fighting styles, which are defense, dueling, two-weapon fighting, and protection. Yes, and we talked about this before recording today, and those all fit, particularly from the paladin class. A paladin's going to kind of basically a fighty cleric anyway, so as you had pointed out, I like that. I mean, I have absolutely no real reason to say why that wouldn't fit. And then with those particular fighting styles that are available, again, they can give you a little extra oomph on the field. They can change some things because there were some things we wanted to change as well. So those fighting styles would overlap with any kind of gap that we'd create otherwise. And I was thinking pushing War God's Blessing back to uh, level 9, maybe level 7. Both of those are dead levels where they're not actually getting anything. I'd push it to level 7 because I'd want War God's Blessing before Divine Strike, I think. It was put before Divine Strike. It feels right to be before then. Because it's something to benefit somebody else rather than you. Or we could just leave War God's Blessing where it is and let them get a fighting style at 7th level. I mean, it's pushing it kind of late, but I don't see a reason not to do it that way. No, that kind of fits. And that's almost like throwing in an extra ASI a little early. Because that would fit right between 4th and... Between 4 and 8, yeah. 4 and 8, yeah. So I think 5th level would be a little too early. 
So sixth or seventh sounds about right. And you're getting Destroy Undead at fifth level. So yeah, that kind of rounds everybody out because you're getting your ASI at four. You're getting Destroy Undead at fifth. You're getting Reward God's Blessings at sixth. You're going to get your Fighting Style at seventh. You're going to get Divine Strike. And another ASI, yeah, at eighth. Okay, now let's go to your idea. You had an idea for breaking down the war domain based on what type of war god. So if you want to go ahead and go into a little bit of detail on what you had idea-wise. Right, so as much as I've said that the clerics get a little clunky as you go further on, I am going to raise my hand, I'm going to embrace my hypocrisy and say, I'm wanting to make it even more clunky. Particularly with the war domain. When you read the description of the war domain, you get to the last bit and it says, Gods of war include champions of honor and chivalry, as well as gods of destruction and pillage, and gods of conquest and domination, and other war gods. They take a more neutral stance promoting war and all of its manifestations, supporting warriors in any circumstance, which is fine. That's great. But then you look at past proficiencies. Once you start getting guided strikes, war god blessing, the only aspect of war they're really promoting here is bashing stuff up. And you look at war gods through lore and history, and they cover a wide spectrum. So I kind of want to take the war domain and split it into four other subclasses, subdomains of that. And so Ian and I were discussing this. I want a subdomain of strategy, a subdomain of battle, a subdomain of leadership, and a subdomain of restoration. So what I was thinking is switching out, particularly with your first level proficiencies, if you kept the sub-war domain of battle, you'd keep everything as is. If we were looking at strategy, instead of getting the proficiency with the martial weapons and, and armor, you're going to get the proficiency with insight and investigation. And if you already have those, then you're going to go ahead and get expertise in one of those skills. For leadership, we wanted to say that you'd add your charisma modifier to one person's initiative role that you could see within 30 feet. They have to be able to see and or hear you within 30 feet. And that way, that would be you getting leadership, coordinating an attack, sending someone in. And for the domain of restoration, so if a party member dropped to zero, as a reaction, you could just spend one of your hit die to immediately heal them that much back. So, I mean, because there's nothing more terrifying on the field than thinking you've leveled an enemy and then just watching them stand back up, brush it off and say, yeah, what's next? We had talked about this a little bit, but yeah, so battle, we're going to leave as it is. So you get your proficiency with martial weapons and heavy armor because a battle war cleric is someone who's going to be on the front lines with the soldiers fighting their way through, actually engaging with the enemy and helping his allies from the front lines. The leadership is going to be acting from the back ranks, directing the combat, sort of like the... uh, the old Battlemaster, I think it's the Battlemaster from 4th edition, where it's very tactical, very move people around, grant people attacks. We're not going to be granting people attacks, obviously, but being able to shuffle the board, as it were. We had discussed at the start of combat, whenever you roll initiative, you can choose one ally within 30 feet of you that can see and or hear you, and you can add your charisma modifier to that character's initiative role. So that way, if you've got somebody who is near the middle, but they need to be a little bit faster to make your strategy work, give them that little bit of a boost to their initiative score to bump them up a slot or two in the initiative order. Right. I could see this like if you had your barbarian and you really want your barbarian to kind of grab everybody's attention and take those first shots. 
or like if you have a rogue sitting there hiding and they need a little bit of a bump so they can attack from stealth and get that critical in or that sneak attack bonus in. So you could definitely make sure they get that in before everything else goes kind of crazy. Or you want to make sure that your bard goes before your fighter so that your bard can give your fighter a bardic inspiration before your fighter closes with the enemy and makes their attacks. Right. So like Ian was saying, this lets you shuffle and give a little bit more control of the order of battle. But we were also, because you have two blocks of things that you can do with the battle subgroup, we're wanting to do two things per. And so you would get that, and you would also gain proficiency in your choice of intimidation or persuasion. And again, that deals with that leader where you just have that innate sense of leadership. And so you can bark a command at somebody. You can either convince them to do something or command them to do something. And they're just going to kind of jump and react without thinking to it. Having that presence to make someone do what you want them to do without stopping to second guess it. Because we've all seen the people that can do that. And people that just exude leadership. And that's kind of the quality we were kind of hoping to generate with that. And then so the strategy, that's the person who's going to be staying back and analyzing the field and figuring out how best to overcome your obstacles on the field. There's going to be a lot of overlap in duties between a strategy and a leadership. Yeah, but what we wanted, or at least what I was thinking of with a strategy type, is someone who's going to survey the field, be able to take more of a tactical advantage, less likely to be ambushed. So if someone was actually taking the time to read a map or kind of have an idea of the lay of the land versus commanding people and their order, they would have more of a presence of a situational awareness or what's going on around them. And so you would gain proficiency with your choice of insight or investigation? Yes. And if you're already proficient in both, you gain expertise in one. That also goes for the leadership with persuasion or intimidation if you're already proficient in both then you get to choose one to gain expertise in but strategy also gets to add their wisdom modifier to their initiative role because they are taking everything in surveying everything analyzing where the threats are how the threats are going to approach what they need to do to mitigate those threats so they're using their wisdom to analyze the field and get the upper hand And so the restoration, as a reaction, you can spend one of your hit dice when an ally within 30 feet hits zero hit points, and you heal that target for your hit die plus your wisdom modifier. So you're just basically popping them back up. And so that kind of gives you a quick heal. It does bring that person back up on the field, which is a really good thing. What I was thinking, kind of what inspired me for this, the war domain, everything was kind of battle-oriented. But you talk about the war gods, and even looking at something like Greek mythology, Ares is a war god. Likewise, Athena, also a war god, but completely different in how they're perceived. Odin is a war god, but again, that's more planning and strategy, and he's also a god of wisdom and insight, like Athena was. In Celtic mythology, you have the Morrigan, who took the field, who would entice people to attack first or last or whatever, but she also chose who lived and who died. She came in the form of a crow. So these were different aspects of various war deities throughout human history, and they are also very different. They're not just all charge the field and be a champion, because that's what the fighter class is. So I definitely wanted to give the clerics, because if a cleric's going to be the vessel of a god, then how is that god going to react in battle? Because they're not all the same. So what is our second thing that they're going to get? For restoration, I kind of almost want to give them an extra 
a 1d4. I'm really liking looking at that mantle of command. Yeah. Crusader's mantle? The Crusader's Mantle, I kind of want to do something along those lines, too, because that's actually... It wasn't the Crusader's Mantle. I do want to do something with the Crusader's Mantle, something we can talk about later. The Divine Favor? Uh, Divine Favor or possibly uh, Shield of Faith? I think Shield of Faith gives a bonus to AC. AC, yeah. And that's kind of a protection type thing. Thinking about that, I'd either want to add... I'm not quite sure how to work it, but I want to add almost an aura effect. So if you use a potion... It would add an extra 1d4 to the healing, or 1d4 to any healing while in your presence. I would almost prefer, say, an aura that allies who are within the aura take less damage. Say, thinking out loud here... um, You don't want to give a full resistance to something. No, absolutely not. What I'm thinking is, once per turn, you can use your reaction to reduce the damage that one ally takes from a single attack by an amount equal to your proficiency bonus. So you have to be close to them. So within, say, within 30 feet. I think even 30 feet would be a bit far. I would make that where they need to be real close. 10 to 15, yeah. So the paladin auras start at 10 feet and bump up to 30 feet at 18th level. My question is, is things are going to hit a lot harder at higher level. So I guess... Taking six off attack wouldn't be too much at 20th level because things are going to hit fairly hard at that point. But it could mean the difference between you dropping to two hit points and you dropping unconscious. And I'm good with that. I don't know if saving six hit points is too much. But yeah, I think proficiency, I think that fits. Trying to think about it, trying to run numbers in my brain. So at first level, it would be two. Two. So every round, you can reduce one attack against a creature either yourself or a creature within 10 feet of you, by two points. Two. I like it. If anything else, I would, depending on how fast combat goes, that can add up really fast. I like it, but I would almost say maybe twice per short rest. I mean, it, it's one of those or, things where I'm I'm okay with, you know, reducing one attack per round by two okay. points. Or up to six points. Because... That's really not a huge amount of damage reduction, but it is something that adds up. Because damage that isn't dealt is damage that you don't have to heal. Yeah, I like that. I'm just afraid it's going to add up to be too much. That said, I don't know how to trim it back any further without muting it completely, so I think I'll... I mean, if you have something like Stone Skin that gives you resistance to non-magical weapons, that's going to mitigate far more damage than this will. Right, but you don't get stone skin until... It's a 4th level spell, so you get it at 7th level. Right, and then the thing that the other forms are getting is only used once per combat because it's just that initiative roll. And that's where I'm getting curious because if you go into a room of monsters and then you break into another room of monsters and you don't have time for that long rest, or you have something that lasts, you know, everybody's just rolling a little wonky and so now a combat's lasting 5, 6, 7 rounds and now you're dealing, that's 14 points of damage and that's a lot. Of damage 14 points of damage across an entire party right but that's still a lot of damage that's been mitigated and like i said i don't know how to trim that back any further so i think it's okay and maybe this is one of those things we leave a question mark by that we definitely need to check when we do our showcase and our play test to make sure it's not because that one i think can tip into overpowered and i think a player could break that easier than something else but i think that making it you have to use your reaction to do it If you use your reaction to do it, and an ally drops that turn, you can't use your spend a hit die to pop them back up. 
You're right. And I think that is a good balance. And I think those two fit well together like that. Especially if you're using a reaction to do it, I think that makes it better. Yeah, that was specifically something that I was putting in there that you would have to blow your reaction to actually do this. Okay, I would be much better with that, yes. So is there anything else in the war domain that you wanted to alter, buff up, nerf? If anything, I would want, because you talked about where you have that gap, and now I'm trying to think of what I can stick in that gap to fill it in, and I would probably want to add something else for each of those to fill that gap, but I don't have anything right off the top of my head to do it with, so I think we could leave it as is and walk away satisfied and happy. I think that everything else, your Guided Strike, War God's Blessing, Divine Strike, and Avatar Battle, I think all of those still fit well with all four of these categories. It's just that this gives you the option to flavor it a little bit better, to tailor it to whichever War God that you're serving. Yeah, I'm happy with the rest of it, personally. So, it's a bit much, so I'm not really going to recap it here. I'll just wait and put it in the write-up. We do need to decide which of the four subtypes we're going to be using for our cleric. Yes, we do. Personally, I'm thinking either combat or leadership. I am too, and I think we had discussed at various points that we think our cleric is most likely going to be party leader, unless player personality takes over, which is a very possible thing to happen. So I think actually leadership, just giving us a chance to playtest something that we have changed. And I like that too, because the one thing that we're really pulling away with leadership is you're not going to get the proficiency with the martial weapons or heavy armor, but that's wonderfully covered by the Hobgoblin race itself, where they're automatically getting proficiency with two of those. So, And again, that's one of those things we talked about. Also with adding the fighting style can also help cover that gap. So I think that will be a good way to see how well those links overlap to protect our characters. But we have now a full party. We do have a full party. In our next episode, we're going to go over the magic items that we're making for our Hobgoblin War Cleric. And our showcase is looming upon us, getting closer and ever closer. Absolutely. I'm excited to see how these guys shell out. So next episode is going to be covering the magic items. And then we are going to be getting ready to playtest all of this. So Awesome. I'm getting really, really excited. Yeah, me too. So Excellent. And again, feel free to share with your friends. Like, subscribe, comment. Send comments either to our Twitter or our Gmail under Common Taste. We'd love to hear from you. See what you guys think. See anything you'd like to try to change or tweak or how you feel about the changes we've made. I guess we'll call that a wrap and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. You can find our past episodes hosted on Podbean and available through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. New episodes go live on Wednesdays, and the write-ups for our homebrewed content are published on Fridays. Join us on Facebook or Instagram at Undercommon Taste, or on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew. Links to all of our content can be found on these platforms. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dr. Mary C. Crowell. 
Again, thank you for listening and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.